You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 17th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is part two of our two-and-a-half-hour interview with Tim Buckley, Director of Energy Finance Studies for the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis based in Australia. We featured part one in episode 91, in which we primarily discussed the future of coal-fired power in India. In the second part, we'll key off the India story and look more broadly at energy transition across Southeast Asia and consider the outlook for coal, renewables, and nuclear power in China, Japan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Malaysia, among others. As in part one, Tim shares with us today a fascinating set of data on these questions that is oftentimes sharply at variance with the projections that we've heard from energy watchdogs like the International Energy Agency, and which tells a much more hopeful story about energy transition in the developing world. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll look at a new subsidy program for electric vehicles in India. We'll note a new plan to build gigawatts of solar in Thailand. We'll take a quick look at an exciting new long-distance transmission line project in the U.S. We'll note a new standard in the U.K. to turn to electric heating instead of gas. And we'll note a new study on the likely cost impact of phasing out coal in Germany. And just a quick reminder that if you're a subscriber and you haven't been exploring our show notes, you've been really missing out because we offer an extensive bibliography for every episode covering all of the research sources and news items that you hear in every show. But you have to log into our website to access them. They're not viewable on the podcast app on your mobile device. So if you're looking for more information on something you heard on the show, be sure to log into our website and check out the show notes for that episode. And then maybe try out our interactive transcript player while you're there. And now, part two of our conversation with Tim Buckley, recorded February 10th, 2019. Well, let's move on from India here and just have a quick look at some other Asian countries. An old saw that's been going around for about a decade, by my count, is that China was building a new coal plant every two weeks. And I'm sure at one point that was true, and I think many people have held similar expectations for India, maybe with a bit of a lag, as you say, five or ten years behind. But is that still valid? I mean, in particular, are financial institutions still willing to finance new coal plants in China, recognizing, as you said earlier, that they're no longer so willing to finance them in India? That is yet to be the issue in China. And in fact, we saw a dramatic slowdown in the installation of new coal-fired capacity in 2016 and 17 in China. But 2018 and 2019, we're likely to see, unfortunately, an acceleration of commissionings of coal plants. Why? It's a bit counterintuitive given the average utilization rate of a coal-fired power plant in China is literally 50%. So it's 10% lower than what it is in India. Wow. So the average coal-fired power plant in China in 2016 and 17 and 18 was idle every second day on average. And yet 
2018, we noticed a marked acceleration in completions of coal-fired power plants across China. And I think a lot of what this gets back to the issue you raised about India, that finance is still available in China. China's banks are some of the biggest in the world and they're still willing to lend to fossil fuel companies. But we had a lot of projects over $100, $200 billion of coal-fired power plants that were stranded, effectively half-built. And so what the state governments in particular have realised and the banks have realised, we're better off actually finishing them. So if they're half-built, we can either write off what we've invested today or we can sink another half a million dollars per megawatt of capacity and complete it. And then we'll have a modern, low-cost coal-fired power plant. It'll be fully depreciated. It'll just run at a marginal cost, but at the end of the day, it's better than writing off the half-built plant. So unfortunately, we have seen China continuing to probably install a new gigawatt of coal-fired power plants every two weeks in the last six months, and that'll probably continue for the next six to 12 months. But mm. Ultimately, building a new coal-fired power plant, one of the flaws in the IEA's thinking and the coal industry's thinking is that the very fact that you commission a new coal-fired power plant does not mean you burn any more coal. What's happened globally is that the average coal-fired power plant utilisation rate globally has actually dropped dramatically in the last decade. And to give you some numbers on that, we've actually seen... Back in 2008, the average coal-fired power plant globally ran 90% of the time in 2006. Yeah. It dropped to 72% by 2010. The average utilisation of a coal-fired power plant globally in 2018 was 56%. Wow. Now, that sounds... Hard to fathom, except when you think that China's got half the world's coal-fired power plant capacity and they were running less than 50% of the time in 2018. And India is the third largest coal-fired power fleet behind America and it's running an average of 59%. So the global average is about 56%. So the addition of a new coal-fired power plant in reality is just adding one new idle coal-fired power plant every week or two. <laughs> That's the good news. Bad news for the banks, bad news for the proponents, but not as bad news for the planet because the emissions aren't going up unless you actually run them. Well, some years ago, we heard a lot about China building ghost cities, you know, whole cities that no one lives in. So I guess it only makes sense to build the coal plants that no one actually runs. Well, it's a bizarre nature of a command and control economy. The government 10 years ago was all for growing the economy at 7, 8, 9% per annum, and it needed power, and coal was the single biggest domestic source of power for China. So coal was certainly not a dirty word in China. It was the core driver of the economy, whereas today China has embraced the opportunities in zero emission industries of the future. And by that, I'm not just talking wind and solar, but hydro, grid, batteries, electric vehicles, and so on. And they now lead the world and they're exporting it increasingly, but they're also building as much of it as they can domestically. So that's the good news, that China is leading the way. And I believe now India is on center stage doing the same thing. And India is in fact, up to 10 years ahead of its nationally determined contribution commitments made back in 2015 at the Paris Climate Agreement. In terms of their installation of renewables, they're almost a decade ahead of where they said they would be. Fascinating. That's pretty staggering because I don't think there are too many countries who are ahead of their 
Paris NDCs, yet India clearly is. And so if they stay on target, and I believe they will, the biggest next issue is the grid integration one, which we've talked about. But as they overcome that, they'll continue to roll out 30, 40, 50 gigawatts a year of renewables. And in fact, you will see a progressive share loss to coal and to gas. But over time, you'll actually see gas and coal reduce its absolute contribution to the grid of India, notwithstanding the economy growing at 7 or 8% per annum for the next decade. I mean, yeah. it's a world-changing event because the fact that India can do it means that countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh and the Philippines are looking at that and going, well, if India can do it, why can't we? And the answer is they can. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that. In your article dated January 29th, 2019, you observed that India is almost a decade ahead of its nationally determined contribution commitments to the Paris Agreement. And I was wondering if there are any other countries that are currently running ahead of their Paris commitments. And further, if we think that that's actually a durable situation, like will they actually continue to reduce their emissions more than they forecast? So what we wrote about in that article was that India is ahead of its Paris commitments on two of their three most important commitments. So in terms of energy efficiency and energy productivity, they're ahead of their forecast. And if they stay on the current trajectory, they'll be a decade ahead. On renewable energy deployments, they're almost a decade ahead. The one that they're not and the wire put a condition on, they are behind their nationally determined contribution with regard to reforestation. So mm. Prime Minister Modi committed to planting a huge swathe of forest, replanting forest and India has failed on that. And in fact, India is still knocking down a lot of their native forests to build new coal mines. Wow. China, on the other hand, is, and I'm not a forestry analyst, I'm an energy analyst, but I believe China is deploying millions and millions of acres of new trees every year as part of their nationally determined contribution and their greening of their waters and return to blue skies, as I think the Premier said in his opening address at the People's National Congress last year hmm. to blue our sky and green our waters and solve this pollution problem as his number one statement of the opening address of the People's Congress last year hmm. from the most powerful man in the world. I mean, that's pretty big. So I'd argue China is potentially five to 10 years ahead of their Paris agreements. Now, I was asking a professor in China, why is China so reticent to sing its own praises? And he said, Unlike you Westerners, China likes to do, then say. <laughs> and it was a beautiful slight against both of us, our cultures. But we like to talk about what we're going to do and then do it. Whereas you said, China, it's about doing it and then talking about it. So China, five years ago, set a target of 100 gigawatts of solar by 2020. It was only three months ago that they upgraded that target to 200 gigawatts by 2020. And in fact, they're on target to do 240 gigawatts, but they're already at 150 gigawatts. So they went through the target a year ago and they didn't even mention the target. The fact that they are five years ahead of their own self-imposed target on solar installations nationally, they didn't even mention it. And it's only when you understand China, and I don't pretend I understand Chinese psychology, but this professor, I was having dinner with him and I said, I just don't understand why China doesn't talk more about what it's done, what it's already achieved, because mm -hmm. you seem to be way ahead of it. And he just goes, we like to do and then talk about it. 
<laughs> I can think of more than a half a dozen countries that like to talk about it and then not do as well. But And then not do, exactly. Yeah. My country being a, a prime <laughs> example of that. Ironically, your country is ahead of its renewable energy installation targets. And last year, I think, was the second highest closure rate of coal-fired power plants in American history, 15 yeah. gigawatts. So yeah, that's right. The year of bring back coal, according to your president, it was the second highest coal closures in American <laughs> history. So... I'm very glad on that respect, your president likes to talk a lot and is less inclined to actually action anything. <laughs> but I'm only slating your president. I would say the same thing about our prime minister. He is as committed to the Paris Agreement as your president is. I mean, he's not at all. Well, yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, when you were talking about, you know, why coal seems to be less a part of the entrenched interests in India than it is in Australia. I said, well, it might have something to do with coal being a deeply entrenched part of the whole business complex and, and the national revenue of Australia, right? So it is. as the old saying goes, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. Correct. And Australia in November last year became the world's biggest exporter for a little while of LNG. We're the world's biggest exporter of coking coal. We're the second biggest exporter of thermal coal. So when three of our four biggest exports our fossil fuels, it's funny how powerful the incumbent industry is. And yet in India, I don't underestimate coal. I do not forecast coal consumption in India to decline materially over the next two decades, or at least the next decade. Now, that might sound counterintuitive to everything I've said, but India has a massive energy security problem. They import 80% of their oil, 50 plus percent of their LNG, 60% of their coking coal, and 20% of their thermal coal. So they see domestic thermal coal as one of the few natural resources finite natural resources they have. Now, mm. they see hydro, wind and solar as sustainable domestic resources, but ultimately they've got to wean themselves off imported fossil fuels. So they talk about more domestic thermal coal working hand in hand with more wind, solar and hydro to dilute the dependence on fossil fuel imports. So even if they gradually wed themselves off coal-fired power plant generation, they talk about coal to methane, coal to oil, coal to gas technologies, coal to fertilizers. So unfortunately, they just say that we've got a domestic resource here. We've got every right in the world to develop it. And we need to, number one, stop fossil fuel imports. Energy security says you've got to stop it. So when you talk to Indian energy ministers or Indian politicians or Indian corporates, they don't talk about the end of coal. They talk about reducing its share of the energy system. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so the challenge is there, but the good news is, and we probably should finish on the point, India has gone through grid parity. So the cost of wind and solar is now 10 to 20% lower than existing domestic thermal power generation. And it's half the price of imported thermal power generation. So it's entrenched. It's just a question of how fast they can deploy it now. And that's a great outcome for the World Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even though we may not be looking at, quote unquote, the end of coal in India, we are almost certainly looking at the end of coal's growth period in India. And Absolutely. I think that's within sight. Yeah. Um, the end of absolute volume of coal consumed in India is going to be hit within the next five to 10 years on the current trajectory and the current economics. And that then means India goes to potentially nearly zero thermal coal imports over the next decade as well. 
And that changes the global seaborne thermal coal market more than any other factor. And then we have an explosion of renewables, and then we have a whole new set of interesting integration problems in India. And wow, is it going to be interesting to see how that plays out? Because as you say, if India is on its way to becoming the largest economy in the world, they're going to have an opportunity to confront some of these really interesting technical challenges, not only after other countries have done some of the heavy lifting in terms of figuring out what the solutions are, but also when the prices have come down to the point where they can really deploy at scale. So it could be a really exciting future for not only renewables, but renewable integrations onto the grid in a couple of years. Correct. And that then puts the pressure back on America and Australia and Europe and Japan and, and Korea and China to stay on target. It will accelerate their own country efforts right. to actually match the efforts of emerging markets. And who would have thought three years ago that India would be leading the world? So yeah. it's, I think, fascinating. It's breathtaking. And I absolutely endorse what the Modi government is doing in the energy sector because they're actually driving the decarbonisation and the move towards domestic sourcing, which improves energy security. And hopefully that then builds in some tools that allow them to address the massive air pollution, water scarcity issues that are rising dramatically behind these other issues. Yeah. So I think if anything, India has got a need to stay on target and accelerate. So I think the world will look back five to 10 years from now and realize India is already a world leader. Yeah. And that's great news. Well, you know, you do have expertise over much of Asia, and I really want to capture some of your thoughts on well, to start with, Japan's energy future. I mean, I know this is a really big subject and it really deserves its own episode. But, And as soon as I find the right guest, I'll do one on it. But the messages coming out of Japan have been so confusing, even contradictory, especially since the Fukushima disaster. For years after that event, TEPCO and its allies and government and elsewhere swore that the nuclear fleet would be restarted and that Japan would not turn to coal or renewables to displace the nuclear fleet. And then there were a few plants restarted and stopped and then restarted again, as I recall. Plus, there were some local officials, actually, who stood in the way of restarting some of the nuclear plants. So the whole question of whether Japan would continue to rely on nuclear power has had these sort of ever-changing answers for like eight years now. Then there were these wild claims about how Japan was going to eventually pivot to harvesting methane hydrates frozen in the seabed offshore of Japan, and they were going to use that gas to fire their power plants. But actually, more recently, I've been hearing these different things about offshore wind projects, floating solar arrays, and even the cancellation of a big two gigawatt coal power plant that was to be built in Sotogawa City because the financial returns just didn't look good anymore. And in fact, 11 of the 50 units at coal-fired power plants that were newly planned since 2012 have apparently either been canceled or switched to a different fuel. So there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of moving parts here. What's your view on how Japan is likely to generate its electricity in the future? As you say, it's a topic of immense size in its own right. Japan is the fourth largest electricity market in the world behind only India. And Fukushima changed everything. It changed it in many negative ways as well as in the long term encouraging some positives. But probably the biggest issue was as soon as you took offline the 40 plus gigawatts of nuclear power, you 
put a reliance on the need to generate electricity immediately, they had spare capacity in their LNG, in their oil and their coal-fired power plant fleets. So the utilisation rates on all three of those then went through the roof. So their imports of fossil fuels went up dramatically, their emissions went up and their commitment to the Paris Agreement went through the floor because all of a sudden you took offline 40 gigawatts of zero carbon emission capacity. So it totally derailed their ability to deliver on the NDPC capacity. But I look at Japan as going through, as you said, a lot of contradictory messages are coming out of Japan. I actually think Japan has made a fundamental mind shift in September, October last year. And I don't know what the catalyst was, but I think we might look back a decade from now and real, or even five years from now, we'll look back and see that India is a world leader on decarbonisation. We'll also look back and realise that Japan has gone from being an absolute world laggard in decarbonisation and commitment to Paris, about as bad as Australia or America at the moment, to potentially looking now at the opportunities and really looking to be a constructive player. Now, why do I make that point so strongly? There was an op-ed by the Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, in end of September last year, I think it was, where he said, look, Japan has been a laggard, but the magnitude of extreme weather events globally is getting more frequent and those events are becoming more and more extreme and they're getting to the point where we can't ignore them. Now, the specific catalysts for his statement, and the statement is available at the Financial Times, it was an op-ed he wrote in his own name. And he said, look, in the last week, we lost 200 citizens to flooding in the Western Japan. In the same week, we lost 160 citizens dead due to heat waves. And those are extreme weather events. It shows that it doesn't matter how rich you are, how young you are, what country you are, you will be affected. You cannot avoid the impacts of extreme weather events becoming more extreme and more frequent. And so he committed Japan as the chair of the OECD in 2019 to being a constructive player which I'd argue Australia and Japan have probably been two of the most destructive players in the last five years in the decarbonisation needs for very different reasons. We're a big exporter of fossil fuels, but Japan is the biggest importer of fossil fuels in the world. And so that import-export dependence, when Japan lost through the Fukushima disaster, they lost their capacity to deal with the decarbonisation. But fast forward today, he's saying, well, we have no choice. Why is Japan moving in ways people didn't expect? One, the economy has been stagnant for a decade. So electricity demand is 10 years lower today than it was just prior to the Fukushima disaster. Mm. Now, that decoupling of energy demand from economic activity, it was unprecedented a decade ago, but it's been very clearly shown in Europe, America, Australia and Japan over the last 10 years. In America, the American economy is growing 2.5%, 3% annually. Your electricity demand has flatlined for a decade. In Japan, the economy has been growing at 1% per annum, but electricity demand has been falling at 1% per annum. Hmm. Now, 1% doesn't sound a big swing factor, but it's a 2% variance. And over a decade, that's a 20% variance. Over a two-decade period, it's a 40% variance. So forecasts are made a decade ago for demand in 2030 are going to be out by 40%. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In late February, India's cabinet approved a $1.4 billion program over three years to subsidize sales of electric and hybrid vehicles in support of its goal to have 30% electric mobility by 2030. The so-called Faster Adoption and Manufacturing of Hybrid and Electric Vehicles, or FAME, program would subsidize buses, cars, three-wheelers, and motorbikes that cost less than 15 lakh rupees, or about $21,000 US, and that use lithium-ion batteries or other new technologies. The subsidy is reported to be 10,000 rupees, or about $1,400 US, for each kilowatt-hour of battery capacity available in a vehicle. The scheme would also build some 2,700 charging stations and metros in order to ensure that there is at least one charging station available in any 3-kilometer-square area. Item 2. Thailand's state-run Electricity Generating Authority has announced its plan to build the world's largest portfolio of floating solar farms in pursuit of the country's goal to obtain 27% of its generation capacity from renewables by 2037. The plan calls for the construction of 16 solar farms. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>